Lord, we thank you so much for the grace that you give, um, even as we just sung this song, uh, we sang this, the line that says this was by a grace unsought, meaning that we did not seek your grace, uh, your grace pursued us, and that is a humbling reality. It also is an encouraging reality. It also reminds us that we desperately need Christ. And so we pray that you would help us now as we look at your word, that you would encourage us by it, that you would help us to learn, to internalize the truth of Scripture, and that we would walk away being more worshipful of you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Today is the third and uh, conclusion of a short sermon series on God's grace that was supposed to be all in the park, but we're going to do it here. We began this series with a question, and the question was simply this, why a series on God's grace? After all, we're Christians, and if anyone knows about grace, it's us, right? I mean, we, we talk about it all the time. Half of the churches in America, we said, have the word grace in their name. Uh, By force of habit, hardly a Christian offers public prayer without thanking God for his grace. We have made the word grace into a name for our children. And if you walk into any Christian bookstore today, you will see the word grace plastered on half of the decor items. And yet, for all of our talk on the topic of grace, I have suggested that we have... Uh, as uh, America, Christianity in America, very little understanding of the length and the width and the depth of God's grace. Now, my goal in this sermon series uh, was not to help you plumb the very bottom and exhaust the depth of the grace of God. If that was my goal, I have failed Because God's grace surpasses anything that we have said. Rather, my goal was simply to just move the needle a little bit. (laughs) To help us to see that God's grace is deeper than I thought it was. That it's more vast than I thought it was. And drive me to worship more than I was three weeks ago when we started this. Two weeks ago, we saw a uh, message by the title of The Grace of God to Forgive. Last week, we saw The Grace of God to Justify. And this week, Lord willing, I want to see The Grace of God to Sanctify. And so we said that of all the ways that we could explore the depths of God's grace, one of the ways is simply to look at what grace does. Grace forgives. Grace justifies, and grace sanctifies. Of course, there's a long list that does more than those things, but these are just three that we wanted to focus on for this time. And so today, as we look at God's grace to sanctify us, we're going to look at an outline that is three parts. The first part, number one, is a mistake to avoid. Number two is an insurmountable problem. And number three is God's grace to sanctify. Now let's just jump right in, and I want to warn you about a certain mistake that we could make. And the mistake that could be made is that we would collapse justification and sanctification into one and the same thing. I want to keep justification and sanctification as distinct doctrines within Christianity. Let me uh, explain the difference here uh, to maybe help us understand what, what, what we're getting at. The purpose of justification is to declare us righteous. The purpose of sanctification is to make us righteous. This is probably one of the most important things that I'll say today. So let me just say it one more time. The purpose of justification is to 
declare us righteous. The purpose of sanctification is to make us righteous. Justification and sanctification are not the same thing. Justification is immediate, it is instantaneous, it is in that very moment that I am justified, not partially, but fully. Sanctification, on the other hand, is a process. I am growing personally to be more like Jesus Christ, and that is something that takes time to happen in this life. We believe, of course, here at Crossview Church, what is called justification by faith alone, which means that when I repent and believe upon Jesus Christ, I am instantaneously in that very moment justified. This means that God's grace covers my sins. He forgives me. He gifts me his very righteousness itself. And nothing else is required to be in the presence of God. That is it. Repent and believe on Christ and you are saved. Justification is how the thief on the cross could be immediately and instantly right with God, even though he did absolutely nothing to justify himself. The thief on the cross did not have to get down off of the cross, go do a few good works to make up for all of his bad works, you know, get baptized, give the church some money, and then come back up on the cross and die, and then God would save him. No, he was absolutely helpless. He could do nothing of his own strength to merit God's favor, and yet Jesus Christ simply says, you're going to be with me in paradise today because of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And by the way, if we think that we can do anything more than the thief on the cross to justify ourselves, we're kidding ourselves. We are just as helpless. We are just as unable to do anything in God's sight. Justification is how you, if you are a Christian here today, justification is how you can stand in the very presence of the Almighty and he will not cast you out. The doctrine of justification can be summed up in Romans 8.1, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not a partial condemnation. It's not a we'll wait and see if there's condemnation. It is simply one and done. You are justified. There is no condemnation at the end. You can have no condemnation because of God's grace. Now, that is the doctrine of justification, Sanctification, on the other hand, is the reality that I am actually, in my life, becoming more righteous, practically and actually. Sanctification means that my behavior as a Christian, over time, begins to line up more and more with my status as a Christian. My status as a Christian is I am perfectly righteous. Sanctification says your life is slowly matching up to that status, your behavior, your actual life. God sees me, according to justification, as perfectly righteous in Christ. But practically speaking, I do not live up to that standard. And the process of sanctification is the process of my practice lining up with that status, okay? We saw this, what, a few months ago when we uh, preached a sermon, simul Hustus et peccator, that uh, Latin phrase that is saying, I am at the one time just and a sinner. I am just, perfectly just, because of justification, and I'm a sinner because practically speaking, I still am in growth. And this is kind of the relationship between these two doctrines. The problem comes then when we take justification and sanctification and we mix them together so there's no distinction anymore between the two doctrines. That creates a big problem. Now, if you do that, and if you take justification and you take sanctification and you mix them up so there's no distinction between the two, 
there is going to be one of two errors that you are going to fall into. You will make one of two mistakes. One mistake that we could make, mistake number one, when you mix justification and sanctification, is that you could suppress justification. If you mix them together and suppress justification, you will be under the false belief that your works contribute to your salvation. My Roman Catholic friends make this mistake. When they look at the Bible and they see commands in Scripture, all those commands to them is what their justification hinges on. Because justification and sanctification are the same thing. And so all of the commands, so when you, when you mix them together and you suppress justification, then you imagine that your good works will contribute to your salvation and that your standing on that final day before a holy God will depend upon you. In part or in whole. But this confuses and it mixes justification and sanctification. This first error mixes justification and sanctification so that justification is minimized. That's mistake number one. If you mix justification and sanctification together, you could make a second mistake. In this mistake, mixes them together so that sanctification is minimized. Mix them together, and now they're one and the same. There's no distinction, and sanctification is minimized. My antinomian friends make this mistake. Let me give you some examples of what I'm trying to talk about here. Some people believe that the gospel gives grace to forgive sin, but they deny that the gospel gives grace to conquer sin. Yes, of course, God's grace is sufficient to justify. And we, lo we ought to love the doctrine of justification by faith. We love the doctrine of justification. God's grace to justify is sufficient. But they forget that the grace of God is so deep and so vast that it also gives the grace to conquer indwelling sin. God's grace does that too. So, or maybe another variation of this. Some people believe that the gospel does give grace to conquer sin, but that it's none of your business to preach on it. And you just leave that alone to them and God, and God will convict that person in his time. Some people believe that you can say something about sin, but you should be very careful to avoid topics that may offend people. And so we will talk about sanctification, but we will avoid these issues because I, I don't want to lose an opportunity, um, and, and we're just going to leave that alone. Some people believe that you um, can say something about sin, but you should only give broad and general applications, not specific and targeted ones. I can keep my applications very general, very generic, and let God work that, but I cannot say anything that's overly specific. Um, I can say that you, as an example, should not lust as a general category, but I cannot say that you ought not watch sexualized shows because that's too specific, okay? Um, some people go as far as claiming that we can sin intentionally and that all, uh, we, we can sin intentionally and that God just forgives it. I, I minimize sanctification so much that I will presume upon God's grace and just do whatever I want. We have God's grace now so we can relax and just live life up a little bit. Here are some statements that some people may say who um, would hold to one or more of these views. They may say, only God can judge me. This is a minimizing sanctification. They may say, oh, God, God sees my heart. Uh, by the way... Um, <laughs> If anyone thinks that this is better, 
we need to do some doctrinal study here, okay? God sees your heart. That ought to scare every single person, okay? And any, anyone who says, oh, don't worry, God sees my heart. He, know, he knows my heart. Okay. <laughs> do, you, do you realize God's standard is beyond what my standard is? <laughs> okay. Uh, some people may um, quip, oh, you're just a legalist. Um, and, and a person could be this, but just because you say the Bible says you ought to do this does not make a person legalist. Some people may say Jesus is my Savior but not my Lord. Or some people may say what this verse means to me is dot, 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 dot. It doesn't mean that. <laughs> you know, anything but that. <laughs> to me it means this. Sometimes we forget as believers in Christ, that God is concerned with actually making me holy. God cares about me becoming more like Christ. This is actually part of his business, and it actually is part of uh, something that he cares about. Jesus, we cannot divide Christ into Christ is my Savior over here and Christ is my Lord over here. I, I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I accepted him for the, the hell and fire insurance, okay? But at some future point, when I decide, I will make him my Lord, and then I will submit to him, okay? It's a package deal, okay? Christ cares that you are putting off and mortifying your own sin. This is something that he cares about. And my caution to us today as Christians is to be careful against discarding the notion of pursuing holiness. Holiness, the the pursuit of holiness is not optional for us as believers. And we need to be very cautious and very careful that we do not become those who say that pursuing holiness is optional. We should be inviting people into our life. Can you help me see where I need to grow? The, the Puritan Richard Sibbs says a lot of good things. Um, but here's one. Richard Sibbs writes and says, As we desire our whole man should be saved by Christ, so we must yield up the whole man to be governed by him. (laughs) You want to be saved by Christ? We need to be governed by him too. We are living under the government of Christ. And he reserves the right as your creator to tell you what to do. You have no option to buck against that. Christ says you ought to behave in this way, and we have gone and made that optional. Well, he saved me. I don't have to do this. He's not, his grace covers this, and I can just do whatever I want. But there is a problem here, because it is one thing, this is, this is, We might be able to say that point one is hurdle number one and point two is hurdle number two. The the first hurdle is recognizing that we ought to pursue holiness. But the second problem, what I'm calling an insurmountable problem here, is that it's another thing entirely to do it. Okay, so, so maybe you're saying, yes, I understand that I ought to do this, and I understand that I ought not cry legalist every time somebody says you ought to do this or you ought to do that. But I can't do it. <laughs> we need to be reminded that the same problem that requires us to be justified also requires us to be sanctified. And that problem simply stated, the human condition is, I cannot obey. If if anyone want to, no, I can obey. No, we can't obey. Now, after we were saved, 
Keep in mind that there was no relaxing of God's law for the Christian. God does not say post-salvation, you can put everything on cruise control and become more lax and more passive. Don't worry about it. You want to lie to get out? Okay, go ahead and lie. You need to steal something? Steal, fine. You're a Christian now. You're covered. You've got the insurance policy, okay? Now go ahead and, and do whatever you want. The Christian understands both the priority of holiness and the impossibility of holiness. And this is a big problem. We need to be reminded that the Bible is not afraid to use words like strive, labor, purge. The Bible is not afraid to call us to holiness even in, yes, the New Testament. Even in the New Testament. Okay? Let me read to you a few. Again, recognizing that we are called to live holy lives. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive. Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Galatians 5, 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. That's a pretty severe process in case you're not aware of that, okay? Crucifying the flesh is a pretty severe process. Matthew 18, 19, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 1 Corinthians 5, 13, purge the evil person from among you. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Now, one of the concerns that I see as I... um, see people engaging with some of these texts is that there is a tendency because of justification by faith alone, there is a tendency for people to declaw these passages and to remove that urgency and and to remove the seriousness with which we ought to strive to be like Christ. It's Have you heard? We've got grace now, okay? Have you heard? Lighten up a little bit. But the New Testament has not slacked off in this way. If that was the right hermeneutic, if the right hermeneutic for understanding the commands of God was you're saved, now slack off, then the New Testament would not be chock full of command after command after command to strive and to crucify and to attack our own sin. The New Testament has not slacked off in any way. The Old Testament is full of biblical commands, and the New Testament continues in that tradition. The pace has not slackened. If obedience were optional, one would expect the New Testament to reflect that, but it does not. All the way up to the book of Revelation, we are full of command after command after command. In fact, the New Testament has some pretty harsh things to say to those who refuse to obey the Lord. We are not saved by our works. We saw that last week with God's grace and justification, okay? So don't misunderstand that, okay? On the other hand, our obedience is a litmus test to whether we have genuinely been converted. In 1 John 2, verse 15, we read, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Did you read that? Did you hear that? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's supposed to be a weighty sentence. It's it's not supposed to be in the list of verses that we can cast off, okay? And by the way, there happens to be no verses in that list, okay? It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be weighty. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That's also supposed to be weighty. We... <laughs> We've got grace now. Okay, what does that mean? Throw out the book of 1 John? What, 
it has to mean something. It kind of means what it says that it means. Again, um, this is not saying, it, it, hopefully, if you understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and hopefully last week's message maybe helped a little bit as well, hopefully you understand that First John is not saying that your salvation depends on your effort. That's not what it's saying. It's if you have truly been saved, you will put forth an effort because God is working in you. Good works, someone said one time, I thought it was helpful, good works are involved in my salvation, but you just have to put them on the right side of the ledger, okay? On this side of the ledger, you have causes of salvation. Works is not on that side. On the other side of the ledger, you have results of salvation. Good works is on that side. It's a consequence of God working in my heart. Those who make a practice of sinning reveal that they do not belong to the Lord. Again, uh, Lord willing, actually, af- after, um, after 1 Corinthians, I would like to preach um, from Amos in the Old Testament. And then uh, after that, uh, I plan on going to 1 John. So it'll be a little ways away. But um, one of the things that we will see in 1 John is that John does say that if you are Actually, he says, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. And then he goes on and he says, uh, no one born of God as a practice of sinning. And we will look at that, Lord willing, more in detail when we get there. Um, But the idea is, yes, you are going to sin, but a believer in Christ does not continually and regularly, unrepentantly just go on with no remorse, no guilt, no anything. And that's what John is talking about. All right, so then what difference, we've done a lot of prep work here today, what difference does grace make then? Why talk about God's grace in light of all these commands towards obedience and holiness? And it is to this topic, point number three, God's grace to sanctify, that we now turn. The theme that we've been looking at the last three weeks is that God's grace is more. God's grace is more than we could have imagined The first week, we saw that God's grace to forgive was more than we can imagine. You remember? God will not dismiss our sin. God will be just. And yet, he's made a way to both be just and forgive us. God's grace is more than we imagined when it came to that. That was week number one. Week number two, we saw that God's grace to justify was also more than we could ever imagine. Because we... Forgiveness only brings us up to a zero balance. We need positive credit in our account to be in God's presence. And so God's grace to justify went beyond what we imagine because it actually gave to us a gift of righteousness and a gift of righteousness that was God's himself. It belonged to God. He gave us his righteousness. That's week number two. And this week we want to see that God's grace to sanctify is also more than we could ever imagine. Now, why would we say this? Why would we say that God's grace to sanctify is more than we can ever imagine? Part of the reason for this is because of the belief that many people have that, and by the way, I at one time in my life held to this belief also, that God's grace is sufficient to bring me to the door of salvation, but no further. The gospel, according to this view, is required to save me. But once I'm saved, I don't need the gospel anymore. The gospel is for all of those lost people. God's grace is for all of those lost people to repent and believe on Christ. I don't need it anymore. Some people believe that once you get on the grace train, it takes you to your justification as the final destination. And grace drops you off at that train station and it lets you walk the rest of the way by yourself. When it comes to your sanctification, to becoming actually holy, you're on your own. This is a wrong view because we need God's grace for every moment of our lives. What I want to do is I want to spend the rest of the message today telling you 
two things. Only two things that we're going to look at about God's grace. These two things are two attributes of God's grace, or we might say two works of grace in our lives. We're going to look at, we, again, we could go on for a long time about all the ways God's grace works in our lives, but specifically, when it comes to sanctification, for you becoming practically holy, God's grace is doing two things. God's grace does two things that the law cannot do. This does not mean that the law is bad or is evil. In fact, Paul says the law is good. Okay, But there are two things that God's grace does that the law cannot do. Number one, God's grace gives us the power to obey. We might say that it enables us to obey. The grace of God is the power source for your sanctification. It's like the battery or the engine that drives it. Okay. If you are a, a, on a train track and there is no engine to pull you, that's what sanctification looks like without God's grace. Okay. But God's grace is the engine pulling you on that train track. That's number one. God's grace gives us the power to obey. Number two, God's grace gives us the desire to obey. Or we may say the motivation to obey. Now there's a third thing that grace does not do. I'm emphasizing all capital letters. Grace does not do this. Okay, But some people put it on this list. And it ought not be put on this list. Okay? Some people believe that you should add a third one to this list. And that is God's grace gives us the option to obey. That is false. Okay? This is not an option for the believer in Christ. Romans 6.1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? <laughs> Let's keep, if God forgives sin, and that is an expression of divine grace, then let's just keep sinning so that grace keeps coming. Paul says, by no means, how can we die, who died to sin still live in it? By the way, if this is your motivation, if your motivation is, I want to see divine expressions of grace, so, so what, what, did these, what did the people that Paul was talking to in Romans think? I want to see a divine expression of God's grace. God forgives. Let me keep sinning, okay? Let's try this one, okay? Mortify your sin. That's an expression of God's grace. Because if your sin is mortified, if you have killed your sin, it wasn't you that did it. It was Christ. It was God. That's an expression of divine grace. There may be something odd going on in your heart. If you love God's grace in pardoning your sin, but you despise God's grace when it comes to mortifying your sin. There's, there, there is something amiss. And perhaps it is because you love your sin. Grace does two things that the law cannot do. Let's look at each one in turn. Number one, we already said, God's grace gives us the power to obey. One of the go-to passages on this, in fact, I don't know if you guys can throw this up there. I don't have a thing, a presentation today. But if you can, Titus 2, 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Um, read this text carefully. Paul writes, for the grace of God has appeared. And there's going to be two verbs here. Um, in reference to the subject, grace. Okay, So you have Titus 2.11, God's grace has appeared. 
and two verbs. It does two things. Number one, the grace of God has appeared, bringing. There's our verb, bringing salvation for all people, okay? What does this mean? This is God's grace to justify, right? We all say yes, amen. God's grace has appeared, and it justifies. But there's a second verb, training. God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation, and also training us to renounce ungodliness, and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for, uh, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God's grace teaches us to be zealous for good works. Ugh. Don't get too carried away with that. Okay. <laughs> If you are a believer, you will delight in and want to do good works. You will desire it because it's reflective of God. It's reflective of Christ our Savior. Now, specifically in Titus 2, this falls under the God's grace gives us the power to obey category because God's grace trains us. It's enabling us. It's giving us the energy. It's giving us the instructions. It's giving us what is required to obey. This is the difference, by the way, between Scripture and the legalist. The legalist, if, if we want to specifically acknowledge the error of the legalist, the, the error of the legalist is not that they say you ought to obey God's law or God's rules. Okay, We have no qualms with that. We have qualms with separating the law of God from the person of God. The legalist is the one who believes that you can fight your sin in your own strength, in your own power. God's grace is sufficient for the entire Christian life, not only for the new birth, but for the sanctification of the Christian. I want to read to you, um, I don't know, I've got probably half a dozen or more here, verses that teach us this reality that God's grace gives us the power to obey. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you <laughs> to walk in my statutes. Isaiah 26, 12, O Lord, you have indeed done for us all our works. <laughs> you have done for us all of our works, God. Psalm 23 and verse 3, he leads me in paths of righteousness. He's the one doing this. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Jesus Christ became to us righteousness and sanctification. 1 Corinthians 15.10, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God working in me. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God will not let that work go stale or stagnant. He will finish it. Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you. Not only is God concerned that his people live holy lives, he enables them to do so. He gives them the power required, and this is the difference between law and grace. The law commands, but the gospel enables. Jerry Bridges writes this. So where the law condemns, Grace forgives through the Lord Jesus Christ. Where the law commands but gives no power, grace commands but does give power. God's grace gives the power that we need to obey. You see, the difference, again, between us and the legalist is not that the legalist says, oh, you should obey God's word, and then we say, oh, that's just optional. That's, that's not the difference. Both believe that we ought to obey God's word. The legalist believes that he can obey in his own strength, that he can pick himself up by his own bootstraps. We believe that it is God who sanctifies. God is the one who sanctifies. The power to grow in grace resides in God. That's difference number one. Difference number two. God's grace gives us the desire to obey. In other words, God's children delight in hearing God's laws. 
On the contrary, many Christians today are embarrassed or ashamed at God's laws, particularly the ones that may not be politically correct at this moment in time, particularly the laws that that uh, go against the culture, that are countercultural. Those laws of God we're kind of embarrassed about, ashamed about. Uh, let me, uh, don't look over there. Look over here. Look at these verses in the Bible. Don't look at those verses in the Bible. Okay. God's grace causes us to delight in the law of God. I'm specifically using the word law here instead of word. It causes us to delight in all of it. Okay. But... God's laws, the things that he has said, do this and do that, the commands, the imperatives, we delight in those. Let me give you a few verses. Uh, I just took all these actually from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a treasure trove, by the way, okay? Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches, I delight in your testimonies as much as all riches. Like if I had the whole riches of the whole world, whatever, whatever kind of delight you would have in all the money in the world, you put all the money in what? I delight in your testimonies. Kind of like that. Hopefully more. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. Your statutes. So, uh, verse, uh, verse 20. Can, can you... Can you say that Psalm 119 verse 20 is true for you? My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. <laughs> My, it's, this, is, this is more than just, yeah, I, I, I like the Bible. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Give me more of your rules, God. I want more of them. There's a rule I didn't see before, God. Conform my life to this rule, God. I'm consumed with it. I long for this rule. That I would order my life underneath you. That you would direct my steps and cause me to love this. More than I love anything else. You have told me that I ought not to lust. And I long for that rule. You have told me that I ought not lie. And I long for this. That my heart would be pure in this way. What? Why is it that, we don't, that we're not like that? All our own sin. Here's, I think, the cure to this, in part. Don't ever separate the law of God from the person of God. That is, that is the, the, the error of both the legalist and the antinomian. They, they both make the same error. So the, le- the legalist says, I can obey this law without love for God or enablement from God. I can just obey this. It's just a rule. Put it down on my... There's no joy in it. It's dry. It's dull. It's drab. But I'm just going to obey it because this is what I'm supposed to do and perhaps I'll earn some self-righteousness. from it. That's very self-focused. The antinomian says, does the exact same thing. We've seen this theme again and again and again and again and again. And I bring this up periodically because it's an important theme. The, the antinomian does not escape the clutches of the doctrine of the legalist. Does not escape that. He repackages it in a different way. The antinomian still says separate the law of the person. And what do they say? They just do the other thing. They say God matters but his law doesn't. Now... Psalm 119 verse 20 makes no sense for the, for the antinomian. Makes no sense to the person who's, who, who, who throws off God's law and says, it's just grace, 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 and we can do whatever we want to do. The reason that it doesn't make sense to the antinomian is because they cannot possibly imagine a world 
where God's rules and God's person are connected inseparably to one another. When you connect the, the law of God, the rules of God, the word of God, the, the text of scripture, when you, when you connect God's commands with God's person, then the same delight that you have in the person of God gets applied to the law of God and vice versa. I love God so much because of what he's done for me. And I love his laws so much because of what they've done for me. In fact, if you separate these two things and claim, I love God but not his laws, you don't love God. You don't love God. Verse 47, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. (laughs) Thousands of gold and silver, I don't know, millions of dollars, billions of dollars. The law of God. I'll take the law of God. Psalm 119.97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. There is nothing wrong with the law. It's just that the law is incomplete. The law cannot save you. That's why we preach justification by faith alone. It cannot and will not save you. The law commands and and grace enables. And grace also helps you to delight in God's word and his law. When we hear God's... I, I know that... When we hear God's grace and forgiveness, our hearts soar, and our hearts ought to soar. In fact, if your heart does not soar when you hear God's grace and forgiveness, there's a problem there, okay? When you hear the commands of God preached, your heart should also soar. I, I, I talk to two kinds of people. There is a kind of person whose heart soars when I preach the commands of God, but does not soar when I preach the attributes of God, justification by faith alone, forgiveness. There's a kind of person that thinks that way. On the other hand, there is a kind of person that I talk to whose heart soars when I preach justification, when I preach the attributes of God, the the goodness of God, but their heart doesn't soar when I preach the commandments of God. That's a problem. We need to delight in the whole counsel of God. Everything. His word, his attributes, his commands, his rules, his laws, his grace, his forgiveness, his righteousness. The whole, the whole thing. All of it's a joy to us. Because it's, it's attributes of God, characters of God, it's expressions of his mercy, expressions of his grace. He's worked in this way. These are his expectations. These are his laws. This is what he's like. All of it is getting to know who our God is. You can find out about who God is when you study the commands of God too. Do not put the gospel on the shelf when it comes to your sanctification. It's, it's both and. It's the whole thing. At the beginning of this sermon series, I told you that one of the modern distortions of grace that some people have is that grace has a limited reach down and it requires an equal and opposite reach up. God has reached down this far 
And he is waiting, crossing his fingers in heaven, hoping, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please accept my grace. But if there is anything that I hope, if there's one thing that we take away from this sermon series, it is that God's grace does not just do the majority of the heavy lifting. It does all of the heavy lifting. In fact, it does all of the lifting heavier, lighter, medium, or whatever you want to call it. It does all of it. The progression that we have or should have come to or recognize these last few weeks has gone like this. Number one, wait, you're telling me that God's grace forgives even when I'm undeserving of it? Week number two, wait, you're telling me that God's grace justifies even when I bring nothing good to the table? And this week, wait, you're telling me that God's grace sanctifies even when I'm completely unable to do that and unwilling to do that? God's grace does so much more than we can ever imagine. It is free, it is sovereign, it is deep, and it is unable to be measured. If you are outside of Christ, you know, this is one of the things that you just never know. Because I, it would be convenient if, if there was some sort of a floating thing over your head or something. Saved, not saved, okay? I, I don't have that ability. Um, so without assuming where anyone is here today, if you are outside of Christ, repent and believe on Christ. And if you are in Christ, look to the joys that are available in God's daily grace. Delight in his word. Delight in his law. Love the process of sanctification. Don't just say, look, God forgave me of this. But say, look, God helped me to crucify this sin too. It's all God's grace. The whole thing. He's sufficient and he's worthy. Thank you, God, so much for today. Help us to repent. Help us to delight in you. Help us to love your word. Sanctify us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.